The following podcast is brought to you by OpenG Records. Be sure to drop by OpenGRecords.com for information about our upcoming release called SCH. SCH features pianists Zach Bjerken and Miriam Polsky playing music by Schubert, Schumann, and two world premiere recordings by composers Stephen Stuckey and Roberta Sierra. OpenGRecords.com is also your home for podcasts like this, blogs about music, art, and life, and much more. OpenG Records is a place for music and ideas. The interview you're about to hear is with Paola Prestini, a composer and an extremely active voice in the musical life of New York City. She runs the River to River Festival. She has her own label and multimedia production company called Vision into Art and is now the artistic director at the Original Music Workshop, which is a state-of-the-art new performance facility in the heart of downtown Williamsburg. You know, part of the whole idea behind Open G Records is to show the public in general and young musicians in particular how to make it yourself and that you can make legitimate art yourself in the 21st century. And Paula is a great example of that, having done it for the last 15 years on the biggest stage in the world, New York City. In this interview, we talk about her art, her life, and what inspires her to make art and to make beauty in her life. And here it is. All right. right. So here we are live with Paula Pristini, woman about music in New York. Thank you so much. Currently doing a lot of things that we're going to talk about, and we're going to start the way we always start. I love it. Which is with a little bit of alcohol, (laughs) just to get the conversation started. It's a little Prosecco I thought would be. It's wonderful. Thank you. In our interest here. What a great way to start. Welcome to to the Man Game. Thank you. All right. So, more formally, I'm here with Paola Prestini, a real mover and shaker around the city, working currently on uh, three major projects that I'm aware of, and we'll get into all of those. And I uh, just wanted to welcome you, say thanks for coming in. It's a joy. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to do it. So I'm, I'm sort of like uh, almost pathologically interested in how people grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we just like, let's just start there. Where did you grow up? So I grew up on the border I, I, of Mexico and Arizona. Mm-hmm. I was, I'm from Italy, but at a really young age we moved. How, how young were you? I was uh, almost three. Do you have any memories of Italy at all? Or? Well, I do because we moved back for a while, um, for a short while, and also went back every year. But not from when you were little? No, no, not from when I was little. And I, I really grew up very strongly influenced by the border and by the kind of, you know, incredible socioeconomic differences and the, the starkness of those differences. Mm-hmm. And also by, you know, so many of the beautiful things of living in proximity with Mexico, like the, you know, culture of song, culture of food. Food, I was going to mention, uh, my own, yeah, I mean, dear, I, near dear to my own heart. Mine as well. And so it's interesting now as an adult to look back on that time and to see how those influences have played out in my music, how they've played out in the way I want to conduct my life and, and my value system. Well, then let's skip straight to that. How did growing up on the border influence your music and how you want to live your life? So it's a great question. How I want to live my life uh, is, I think, a really you know interesting interesting perspective in that what you realize as an adult is the the series of memories that you have inform the way you know you you choose to live and the decisions you make um i grew up with a single mother and in a house with uh, an incredible nanny who uh left five of her own children to raise me and my mom worked full-time 
And so she was incredibly loving. We spoke Spanish in the house. We spoke Italian in the house. Um, but I was always very aware of the sacrifice on both levels of these women that created my family unit mm-hmm. and the sacrifices it took, um, you know, to support each respective family. Are you still fluent? Just as a, completely still fluent languages? and completely still close to, you know, to obviously my incredible mother, but also to this wonderful oh, lady who helped amazing. raise me. Amazing. So you've known her basically my whole life. Your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I should just add that you know that 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 kind of understanding of sacrifice and of what it takes to, um, you know, to really accomplish things that are challenging and difficult, but incredibly worth it. I think have permeated the way the the, the way I've. I've conducted my life and the decisions I've tried to make. Mm-hmm. Let me ask, were either your parents musicians? My father is um, an instrument maker, and he makes instrument reeds and parts and <laughs> saxophones. <laughs> oh, uh, he doesn't make clarinet reeds? He does, he does. It's, it's yes, it's All right, I'm going to like, I'm gonna have, to, I'm gonna have to do some internet shopping. So what was your early exposure to music then? So I, I grew up... Um, singing in the house. I grew up uh, with, you know, basically playing the piano every day. And uh, I grew up also writing music pretty much at the age of nine, ten. I was already writing. Writing for? For myself. I didn't like to practice. <laughs> so I would write my own stuff. <laughs> and you were, were you playing this on the piano? Was, yeah. And piano. Um, did you play any other instruments? No, I sang when for a long time. When did you start playing piano? I think I started probably around six or seven. Mm. Yeah. Everybody starts earlier than us band geeks. I didn't start till I was like 12. You well, know, it's like you feel like you're behind by I that point. I don't feel like I really, you know, embraced it fully until I was at least 9 or 10. But I was I was definitely playing young. Yeah. Was there something that happened when you were 9 and 10 that made you embrace it? I only? discovered writing. And then it became oh, my thing. So the crea- innate creativity yeah, sparked it, your overall interest. Absolutely. And then pretty soon after I went to Interlochen and then it became... Pretty much shortly after that, there was no other real choice to be made. I knew I, I knew I wanted to pursue a life in composition. So, did you go to Interlochen to pursue composition? Uh, well, first for piano, and then I switched to composition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who was teaching composition there at that time? Uh, Elaine Broad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, that's interesting. I, I I never went to Interlochen. I always wanted to. Always, I'm like, oh, <laughs> Interlochen people. Um, <laughs> was there uh, for you? A particular piece or performance that was like really like cemented this is what I have to do or was it just a, a, a wave of a decision I mean you know it was never really a specific piece growing up we definitely listened to opera mm-hmm. and I loved opera loved it and I loved the theatrics of it I loved the power of the human voice so I think most likely the singing in my family the kind of Mexican folk songs and then this love of opera um, just it, you know, it 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 was a falling in love process that that happened pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Did you ever decide that you wanted to write for voice as, at a young age at all? You sang, you played piano. It, did you yeah. you wrote piano for yourself? Did you write songs? Did you write? I did write songs. Yeah, I've always been. You know, there's always been a real deep fascination with literature, mm-hmm. and so that obviously lent itself to writing for the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, also, some of my earlier pieces, I would take word locution, and that would inform rhythm. Mm-hmm. So there was always a fascination with literature, with words, with... Um, only recently, though, I've been writing grand-scale opera. That's, that's a real task. And writing. it is. A, it's a great <laughs> I can't task. even imagine, you know, the, the amount of work that goes into orchestrating to, like, thinking about 
seen it, seen yeah, uh, how the blocking is going to work, all that kind of stuff. It's I mean, like, luckily that's not you know it's, it's really the pacing. Right now, I'm working on Gilgamesh um, for premiere in Boston, and then Old Man of the Sea for um, Sydney. So you choose just tiny works tiny of art, themes, really, just wisps of small <laughs> wisps. I like yeah, that. Right. It's, uh, that's. Yeah, yeah. So, but but I, you know, it's it's really more making sure that the pacing of the story comes across because it's so different when it's sung, obviously, than a play or or than how it's actually written, right. and that's you know such an incredible, joyful process and complex process when you're working with a librettist. I can imagine. So yeah, I so when you work with a librettist, chicken or the egg, you know, which comes first? Do you get the do you get words? Do you talk about what what the the general scope of what you're trying to do is where do you start with that? I find that every collaborative process is radically different mm-hmm. so for example I'll give you just three quick uh, examples Aging Magician which is the piece I'm doing at the Armory the Park Avenue Armory um, the librettist the, the idea the concept came first from me then uh, he actually wrote some of the word uh, some the words then I scored them but then there were musical parts that worked, so he rewrote the words into the music, mm-hmm. and it was a beautiful back and forth. I see. And creatively, also, it's really the director, the librettist, and myself, so it's a very fluid, kind of less typical, a more atypical process. With Gilgamesh, it's really like I have the libretto, and I'm going to follow it. Oh, really? Yeah, That's and, it. and it, there's fluidity in the sense that I, I give you know, comments, but it was definitely more like these are the steps. You know, and, did, and concept did you adapt was also that, or did somebody else adapt? Uh, um, or? So she adapted it completely, the librettist, and it's actually part of a trilogy, three operas that are being performed in one day, mm. and I'm one of the three composers, and the mastermind of the project is the librettist, which is not very typical. Uh, right. You know, typically mm. a composer is seeking out a theme. Mm-hmm. With Old Man in the Sea, I knew I wanted to do Old Man in the Sea. And I knew, and, and I spoke to Sydney Opera, and they were, got interested, and then I seeked out the director, and it was composer-led. So every process is a little different, hmm. and well, I like that, you know? Yeah, it's interesting how sort of three similar ideas can actually be approached three radically different Completely ways. Completely different way, yeah. And, and in fact, I think the more fluid one is with process, the more you can actually make seamless and kind of more enjoyable processes, because everyone, every collaborator is so different, so you kind yeah. of have to be attuned you know, and also open in life to the you know the way different opportunities arise. Sure, uh, for myself, I like um, I really believe in the sing- a person's singular voice. So if yes. I, for example, my art director for the label, I, I I may have slight directions, I may have tweaks, but in general, that's his baby. You know, you I, trust I, him. I I trust you because I believe in your singular vision, yeah. etc. And I think it's that, also I think a, a great sign of a good leader. I mean, I think in order to be able to accomplish a lot. You have to trust people, and you have to trust your instincts. Yeah, and you have to let go of your ego a little bit, and to say, you know, I, maybe I can make this all myself. But man, at a certain point, why would you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> well, it's again my my inclination is to go fight. So um, after you go to Interlochen and you go uh, in your college age, mm-hmm. where do you decide to go to school? So I went to Peabody, and um, I had two years there, which were good years. And then shortly after, I transferred to Juilliard, and where I met Rachel. Right. And I did my undergraduate there and my graduate. Was that in composition? Mm-hmm, in composition. And I knew I didn't want to get a doctorate, so I just stopped there. <laughs> <laughs> I have all but the dissertation. And oh, I really? just will never... Luckily, I got into a job, uh, university-wise, where I, did, I could get tenure without having to get the doctorate. And I was That's like, great. Yes. That's great. <laughs> yes. So, okay, so we're all the way through college, blah, blah, blah. So... 
One of the big focuses of this label and sort of the idea behind the blogs and something that my partner, Will, who you met, Mm -hmm. uh, has been working on a series of blog posts about is how young people can and need to make original art themselves Mm -hmm. and to take initiative while they're still in school to create ensembles or festival type uh, things. And you are right now at the center of three sort of very big, it's big league projects of that kind of idea that you're doing. So if, if you wouldn't mind speaking to sort of a slightly younger audience, how does one get started? You know, you have an idea, say, um, and we'll get into the three big projects sort of that you're, uh, I know you're involved in 29 or 50 things, but I think three is actually the right number. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you said three. That's right. So how, how does one, you know, start, I have an idea, say to, as you have start a a festival. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, I think the very first thing is when you're thinking about big ideas is to look immediately around you. I think people think that the success or that the answers come sometimes from intangibles, but they actually come from the tangibles. Mm. So what I think one should start with is really the mission of what you're trying to do and why you are the right person to do that and what, you know, what it will do for you and what it will do for your community, you know, whatever it is that idea is, whether it's a festival, whether it's starting a nonprofit, whether it's uh, a record label, very clear, clear, clear ideals and missions, uh, mission. And then from there, the steps that you're going to take to execute that mission. Once you have as much of that as you can fill out, then you start to think, who's the team that's going to help me accomplish this? Once you have that, even if it's two people or yourself and two interns or, you know, whatever that is, that you know that you have what it takes to accomplish that. And then you start looking to connections. Who's my network? How am I going to reach that network? How do you begin to build a network? A network? Right. So it's all based on introductions. You can do cold calls, which sometimes work. And I've definitely done those. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I was the queen of cold calling. And so when you just, I want to, I be- want to do this. I want to meet this person and I'm going to send them, you know, an email or at that time it was a phone call and I'm going to meet them in person, which I still believe in very deeply that a person to person contact is better than any kind of contact. Mm -hmm. And, um, but also you're asking the people you admire if you're in a, whatever community you're in, if you're in a school community, if you're in a, you know, a community center, whatever it is that you're asking people for connections, you know, I have this dream. Can you introduce me to this person? Mm-hmm. And mo- almost all of the time, people will say yes. Right. Because if they see that you have a clear dream, then that's the way the world works, right? You yeah. Give back and you open doors. And so that's really... And then you really... become that. You know, it's like this... And then later you, you pay back, which is very right. much what I believe in. I mean, I to this day, I'll take meetings with just about anybody um, because I'm interested. I'm actually genuinely interested in what... You know, people like I was that 15 years ago, you know, trying to meet people, trying to talk about my dream. And the only reason I am where I'm at is because I had certain people open those doors for me. Yeah, I was thinking something similar the other day. Uh, My generation is now coming in. uh, I should say our generation is now really coming into these prime jobs, level jobs. And now we're the authority. And it seems... You know, it seems it's just yesterday that, like, that. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing, you know what I mean? But yeah. to, to, to now be the person who, who who gives the advice, who gives the leg up, it's definitely weird. Yeah, It's definitely it is. weird. It's humbling, though, because you really see how the cycle works and uh, how it should work. 
I'm not yeah. surprised though that 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 you that it's a high level of success. I think the hard uh, in terms of cold calls. I think the hard thing is to to get the guts to do it. Absolutely. You and know? also, you know, it's interesting because what you what you learn is that in preparing for those calls and preparing for those meetings at the beginning, you Let have to Let me just take a sidebar yes. and just discuss that for a second. Preparing for those phone calls. Oh, you have no idea. I used to write them out. Right. I used to practice what I was going to say. Yeah. Now I don't practice anything because I have a fluidity, right, of what I want, what I I mean, it's 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 at the tip of my fingertips. Right. But when you're starting a dream, it's not at the tip of your fingers mm-hmm. and you cannot wing things right even now like big things I won't wing I write them down but but then there was a high level of practice like I'm gonna go and I'm gonna talk to this person and here's my agenda and um you know and even then I would get nervous and I would mess certain things up but then there's there's an understanding that at least I'm trying right there was still some sort of structure behind what you're trying to say and that you're taking people's time and you have to respect that yeah I think it's that's an important thing for especially younger people to understand is that when when you approach People, you should approach them with a plan. You should approach with Absolutely. a with with a strategy, and not just be like, "Hey, I'm I'm, I'm Johnny the clarinet player." Get Can some you? information. Yeah. No, people don't have time for that. Right. And especially in today's world, where everything is so immediate, and you're asking for somebody's time in person. Yeah. When well, they and can, in this city in particular, and in this city, like, but anywhere, no, I mean, people want to email, right? They want right. to text. They don't even want to pick up the phone. So right. people don't even want to have voicemails anymore. So if you're going to take somebody's time in person, mm-hmm. make it valuable for yourself too. Right. I mean, you're wasting your own time if you don't prepare. Yeah. Not to I mention just, the other person's time. <laughs> yeah, right. I just want to sort of hammer that yeah, point home absolutely. about how important, like, it, in, in business, sort of, uh, and, and you know, we all go to school and we want to learn to be musicians, and there's the whole artistic aspect, but then there's the real world aspect of having to make a living yep. at it. And part of that is how you present. Absolutely. And it's, that starts, as they say, you know, your audition starts when you enter the door. Or, you know, now Rachel and I are looking at schools and they're like, you know, your interview arrives when starts when you arrive. And so the very first moment that people hear from you, you should be presenting something solid to them. Um, So let's talk about sort of the three big things that that you're into. And uh, you're a baby that I know of, vision into art. Yes. And I want to talk to you about the composition and sort of stuff behind this. But can you let... Let's just sort of give a little cliff notes as we get through. Sure. Each about so it's a we have a we're in our fifteenth year. Um, I co-founded it when I was um, at school That's what at I figured. Juilliard. Again, sorry to belabor the point, but you can make things happen when you're still in school. No, that is when you should make things happen. Like your beginning, whether you continue it or not, it's like that's your safe playground to try things out, mm-hmm. and that's what's so important is that you have all these resources at your fingertips, even resources you don't know about, and you know, connections, rehearsal space, uh, you know, certain in-kind things that become much harder when you leave school. And those are the things that I knew I wanted to take advantage of, mm-hmm. not to mention the talent uh, pool that was at Juilliard. Right. So I found it. I received this thing called the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship for New Americans. And it was a fellowship that essentially didn't typically go to artists, but it went to New Americans and to people with kind of, you know, ideas on how to really make the most of our citizenship and, and, you know, communicate that we really want to make a difference through different projects. And so I knew always that I wanted to start a school. I didn't really know what that, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. But I knew <laughs> it's that enormous. I, it's an enormous idea. Yeah. But, you know, I was also in my early 20s or right. I, maybe even 19, I don't remember. I knew that I wanted to, to create some kind of 
uh, community, some kind of space where people could create interdisciplinary work in a safe setting. And I knew that I, I, I was very aware that that being a composer and choosing composition as a, as a career choice was a very um, dangerous choice. Dangerous but in what In the way? sense of, you know, there's so few jobs and mm-hmm. economically and, you know, I was aware that it was, a, there, there was a lot of, there were a lot of question marks in my future. Mm-hmm. Um, so shortly after receiving that fellowship, um, I, with a group of, uh, a team of, of wonderful people who no longer are with the organization, but were very like-minded, uh, created a series of concerts and they were interdisciplinary concerts and we used the rooms, we used, we got a fellowship that we used that brought some money that we could pay artists and we created a lot of shows at Juilliard okay. shortly after we incorporated. Yeah, I incorporated. sorry to stop you because no, no, no. Um, interdisciplinary is a big thing for you and so I just yes. want to get people to make sure that we know exactly what you mean by that. Right, so Vision into Art is really about deep process collaborative work and we commission works between composers, so it's a new music-driven production company, between composers and other artists uh, to create works that transcend disciplines, genres, um, and even work with the sciences. That's one of our big strengths at the moment, and one of the the areas that I'm very proud of and very excited by is the the kind of cross-discipline work that we're doing. So we're working with astrophysicists, conservationists, and creating uh, worlds and, and works that really blur those boundaries and and hopefully attract new audiences to new music that's a, and and reverse right? uh, astrophysicists i would have never you know it's like you think about dance and some art and whatnot but i'm sure that that's maybe cool in the 70s or something like that i'm sure it's but... still cool i mean i we you know the, the kind of work that we do really it goes from this week we debuted a new work that was the, the most simple pulsating from the heart work mm-hmm. uh of puppetry and music and the theme is conservation, to um, a work that we're doing at the Armory that is pretty expansive and includes um, theater, new music, instrument making. Uh, so, you know, it's it's quite expansive. So yeah. I, I believe that, you know, no idea is too small and no idea is too large. It's really about the quality and about this kind of cross-pollination. So that's, that, you know, Vision into Art began at Juilliard, um, but through the years, the mission has slightly evolved but my passion for it has never waned and mm-hmm. it's it's where I debut most of my works now I'm commissioned by other companies but but where, when I really want to try something that's for me radically different I do it in my company yeah. and I commission others because I, one of the things I believe as a 21st century artist is that you you can't live in a bubble we live in a very challenging time as artists and the only way that we can really um I think afford to do what we do is if we do it in context of our colleagues and that means that all of us have a responsibility to somehow make this community and this musical ecology a better place so greater the musical ecology becomes a greater artistic ecology yeah. sort of like widen your sphere just by Absolutely. slightly looking outside of your well discipline. and also by you know by understanding that you know yes talent is important but at the same time you are an advocate for your field so you have to think about it in an entrepreneurial way. You have to think about it in an activist way. You have to educate. And I'm not saying that you have to do these in, you know, all at the same time or even just as long as you have some kind of an understanding that you are not living in a bubble and that you're also responsible for the health of, the, of your musical community. So can you go into some detail on how you see the artist or musician as activist? Because I know that that's sort of a yeah. big part of what you're about as well. Well, I mean, I think 
I did in my 20s do a lot of work that I considered activist work in the arts. Such and, a, I mean, um, well, could you give well, an example of yeah, what Yeah, absolutely. Like? One of the things we did early on with uh, Vision into Art is we had a program um, at Brandeis High School, which at the time was an empowerment high school, high security, and we brought music in and did composition with technology and really went in and brought a music program into a school that didn't have one. Um, through the Philharmonic, I loved the work that I did down in El Sistema uh, in Venezuela, and that was work that was, you know, by nature of, I think El Sistema itself is a very powerful political statement, so by nature of working with them and working with John Deke at the Phil and the beautiful work they did, that felt like time, you know, time that was very empowering, and, and it felt like it was really doing the right thing with, with my musical gifts and composition. To sort of try to improve the normal lives of... Absolutely. Underserved but, and underprivileged? Or? I mean, there's that, but there's also this idea that, um, you know, that, that art can transcend and transform communities. And I think one of the beautiful, powerful things about El Sistema and the work that we were doing, we were actually bringing composition into El Sistema, which hadn't really been done. But, you know, the beauty of El Sistema is that it puts an instrument in all these kids' hands and through practice, through the virtue of practice, you know, really transforms communities and brings communities together and puts focus on many of the shared values in music that, that are so powerful. So those are some of the, I mean, and, and to be honest, I think there's better examples of activists than myself. I think most likely the work I do through commissioning others and through, you know, really that that's more advocacy. But activism, for example, there's an incredible group called um, Found Sound, uh, and I hope I'm saying that right. It's it's run by uh, Elena Park, Found Sound Nation. And they do incredible work with technology and working in countries all around the world. They do a program called One Beat where they bring artists here. And <clears throat> that's a, an incredible, incredible example of activism in the arts. Um, okay, so vision into art roughly being this interdisciplinary composition slash... Yeah. Uh, collaborative yeah. effort in on a on a as large small scale as you can. Yeah, and production company essentially. And the, yeah, and uh, folding in with a label now. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> a near and dear topic to my heart, obviously. But um, when you do inter interdisciplinary works, what do you publish uh, as the label? Like. Um, so I mean, just one thing is to say we we decided to create a label this year because we we're celebrating our fifteenth anniversary. And pretty much what we knew is that we had this kind of one-stop shop for artists, right? So it's incubation with our with a festival called Ferris where we incubate new works and try them out and really give artists the kind of first steps of support with projects. And then we produce, so we take certain projects and we fully produce them or co-produce them with partners. Um, and then we wanted to disseminate. And so we didn't have really a way to disseminate really highly curated multimedia packages. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we live in such a digital age, and it's so easy to disseminate, but we wanted to somehow create a physical package that would honor the, um, would be an artwork itself and would really display the multimedia nature of the works. Mm -hmm. that they're not just music. They're right. That's... CDs and DVDs, and they come with artwork inside, and they're physically packaged in yeah. a very particular way. 
I love that. I think that the physical packaging of things is something that got lost in the digital Completely. revolution. Yeah. And, and in a way, it's great because it's created a facility with kind of being able to disseminate work. Mm-hmm. But we lose that that sense of, of, of ritual when you sit down and you have something in your hand and you put it in right. and you take that time and you don't have emails coming in at the same time on your computers. You're trying oh, to listen to something. Yeah, it's like it's, our kids are going to have no idea about the world that we grew up in where you could put true. a record on for half an hour and nothing and else would happen. Yeah. And it just feels so good to have that weight in your hand. and <laughs> You know, CDs never I felt think so, too. so good. You know, they felt fine, but... Just the LP and yeah. the big broad art. Well, there's that you of get. course a return to LPs oh, right I, now, which I love. The, the the release that we're about to put out, we're putting out on LP, and the main one of the main reasons is, a, we recorded it in, in such high def that the CD can't can't hold it. Can't hold it. The only thing physical that can hold it is is vinyl. Very cool. And also the art is so beautiful that I just wanted to so see it beautiful. big, you know, yeah. so yeah. it's a little bit, I don't know if I'll, I might take a big bath on it, but <laughs> it's just like, uh, I just had to have it. It's too cool yeah. and too beautiful. So let's go into, uh, the second prong of, of the three prongs that we want to talk about, which was is the river to river festival. Right. So that's actually, um, it's the three prongs I would consider All right. Because the River to River Festival, I I curate music, Mm -hmm. but I curate music under the umbrella of OMW and VIA. (laughs) Okay. So I do that because I... My second prong, third prong is going to be OMW. So what is is your third prong? Writing. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, because I I see those... I mean, I guess writing is what I feel defines me. Yeah. But these these two other projects are ways in which... I bring the skills as a composer and mm-hmm. most likely as an entrepreneur um, and help come up, make other things come to life. I think I was separating a bit too much the business from the art in terms of, uh, I just obviously think of you as a composer first off, and so everything else is detailed. Well, that makes you know sense. I mean? But the River to River Festival is awesome. It's this free festival. It's you know one of the only festivals of its size that gives free concerts of unbelievably high quality. And until, I think, two years ago, um, it was... Uh, curated fully by one person and then I think he left and so they wanted to really open it up more to artists curating so there's different people curating um, you know all different kinds of music and I curate the one branch of the contemporary kind of music angle and um, it's been great fun and what we've done under OMW for the last uh, three years ago I debuted my opera on the River to River Festival Oceanic Verses and now the last two years, it's really been under the umbrella of OMW, and we've streamed all those performances on our website, and they've been nice. both national and international, and really showing the ethos of the programming mm-hmm. for OMW. Well, that brings us to, to OMW, OMW, which yeah. is uh, an acronym for the Original Music Workshop, yeah. and I'm just going to give the floor to you because I think this is a really, really cool thing that's happening, and it's something that's happening like everything you're doing right now, but sort of it's kind of a, a, it's a really important to... time for it happening right now. Yeah, so... no, so Original Music Workshop um, is founded by a real visionary man named Kevin Dolan. And Kevin is a tax attorney and came to composition late in life and discovered himself through it. Really had a, an epiphany of sorts through writing and, mm-hmm. and writes beautiful music. And has two children who are in you know music as well. And I think just had a real understanding of the transformative power of music. And in his retirement, semi-retirement, decided that he wanted to give something back. And what that something back 
was going to be a space where emerging artists and artists of all genres, but specifically really he was thinking composers, could come and gather and create music and essentially build audiences and so on and so forth. So about two years ago, um, I was still living in San Francisco, and we met through a common friend of ours and uh, talked and discussed and interviewed and so on and so forth and decided that we were really the right team to bring together this idea. And what's emerged is essentially, I think, a very, very vibrant space that's going to really help um, a new generation of artists, but also artists in general, take those next steps into professional life. It's going to help with dissemination. And it's um, a world-class uh, recording studio designed by Arup. Uh, and so the acoustics are the same PNC value of the world's finest recording studio. There's nothing like it in the city. It's, it's, I've never seen anything like it. It's a it's box. Like... In, it's called the Cajun Cage Construction. So it's all suspended on springs, meaning that there's complete acoustic isolation, but it itself has beautiful acoustics. Yeah. And the way we're envisioning the programming, I should also say that it's a very innovative business model. It's got a restaurant. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, the possibility for recording rates for obviously ticket sales for, um, you know, F and B income, food and beverage income. Thank you. But what I, was I going sorry, to do that next. <laughs> but what I really love is, I mean, and the part I'm interested in is that there's a there's a heavy nonprofit angle, and that's quite frankly what really really excites me, because um, there is a host of unbelievable work being done and incredible partnerships that we're going to be hosting and and nurturing. Um, that I think will make the space a very unique space and in Brooklyn, but not just with a local angle, which it will have, but also a national, international angle through the digital, um, kind of digital um, strategies that we're beginning to think of. And, uh, and so it's, it's a very exciting space. I'm, I'm, I couldn't have been more thrilled to be involved. Uh, I just, I went over there and luckily you, you showed me around and, uh, you know, to think about like being a young artist and being like to have that space is like for, you forget. I, I call it. I, I tell my friends that it's so nice. It might as well be European. It's like <laughs> it's like so. That's great. Out of this world, beautiful. Everybody should go to o. Unfortunately, hyphen m hyphen w dot org. Omw dot org is something else. Unfortunately, but o hyphen m hyphen w dot org and look at the renderings of the building it's insane beautiful. it's so beautiful and also there's what's great is that um kevin knew that it would be very hard to find support for a new you know a new venture a new a new building a new nonprofit. so what we did is i curated for two years before the space um opened in order to really show the promise of the space and so we have a streaming channel that has all the performances streaming so um, let's go back to you being a composer um, and just talk about that straight up. Okay. Um, what, what is your process? I, I've talked to several composers and, and one, some of them are like, well, I just start and then it's like a novel. I see where the, where the characters take me or um, I have a structure or a framework and then I start to compose. Mm -hmm. it, how, how do you, if you're conceiving of a piece, where do you start? It really depends. Shut this door. Yeah, absolutely. It really depends on the on the nature of the piece that I'm embarking on. So um, often when I'm thinking about, uh, you know, kind of large scale thematic work, it's really a book, for example, Old Man of the Sea, or it's an artist that I've just met that's a muse that I really want to work for and I, I work with and I want to write for. Um, but essentially, I would say that. Uh, 
up until eight years ago, the music I was writing was mostly influenced by some kind of folk material, definitely melodic writing and a level of counterpoint. So complexity, but pretty, you know, pretty driven by melody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I began to get involved with electronics. And so that became a scape that I really wanted to experiment with. And so now certain works have deep electronics, live electronics, you name it. Are there particular platforms that you normally use to compose with? I compose on Sibelius and I work with Logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I met uh, certain improvisers. So I started working with an improviser named Helga Davis, who's an incredible singer and vocalist of four ranges and four octave range. And so then all of a sudden I began to find a place for improvisation in my music. Mm-hmm. So really each different um, each different work and each different opportunity has led my music into this kind of evolving, wonderful stage of constant evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say that those are some of the principles that kind of drive my music. And being so busy, do you have to carve out Absolutely. time every day? Well, now it's I have three days a week where I actually don't take meetings and I don't answer emails and I don't... Oh, answer, yeah? yeah? What days are those? <laughs> <laughs> it's usually Monday, Tuesday, and one day That's of a weekend. pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, and you just work flat out? I during... work from about 8.30 until 6. Yeah. Do you, Is that just composition or is just that... writing wow yeah so, well, otherwise I, I can't actually do it I yeah. can't write for two hours right it, I can I can do it once I'm in a state of flow and I'm really just working on editing and you know perhaps or even orchestration I can do in smaller chunks mm-hmm. but if I'm trying to find a language and I'm trying to dive into a piece and pretty much for the first fourth of the piece it's hard you know yeah, it's just not sure. flow and then once you achieve a state of flow then it's you go it's the same when you're practicing. I imagine, <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like I, I, have, I have a new concerto that I'm debuting in in November, and the first like month of it, I'm just like, I don't know I what I'm doing. I write. suck. <laughs> I can't even come That's close you, to when this. You, yeah, when you start writing uh, anything new, you always actually think you've forgotten how to compose. Yeah. I, for me, yeah. it's something that I, that I have a lot of self-doubt. I am a really like... Every artist does. I think that that's a surprise to me. It's something that I hadn't been it's aware of my with. whole life, you know. And then it's just like every day I'm like, this is going to sound like shit. <laughs> and then I'm surprised that I mean, it sounds okay. Yeah. You know, it's like the, 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 the amount of self-restraint that it takes to overcome that doubt right. is insane to me. Well, I think a lot of, you know, that's why you find in many artists a lot of ego. And I think that ego is just kind of, it's not necessarily a terrible thing. It's just kind of ha- trying to have that confidence to, to, to think that what you have to say is important. Yes. It can be mi- misconstrued as like having a huge ego, when in reality it's confidence. And that confidence is born out of time and, and energy and, and belief in yourself that you have to cultivate. The, cultivate is exactly right, because it's just like... Oh, because you're going to be criticized your whole life as an artist. I, you know, I, it's not something I ever, like, think I understood, you know. it's I just I, blindly did it, but I've been reading a series of books by this a writer on how to sort of conquer the daily resistance of mm-hmm. not wanting to do it. And one of his points is that as an artist, you know, you've already decided to say that you are outside of the norm, that right. you are... That you that you have something special to say, and that evolutionary wise, we we want to form a group and we want to stay in the group, and we don't want to stick out too much. So by right. saying you're an artist, you're doing something inherently scary, and that is to step outside of the group and say I have something different. Right. 
That's a very difficult thing well, to do. And get I think over. also it's a very unstable career choice. So mm-hmm. essentially, I think as humans, we're looking for stability, right? We're looking for things to, to flow and to be, to be stable. But by nature, an artistic career is not stable mm-hmm. and it's full of surprises. Right. And those are also the things we live for because yeah. as humans, we also live for surprise. But, That's so, when the good stuff happens often. Right. And so the balancing of those two things is very difficult. Let me finish off the interview by asking a question because we're about to go have some dinner time with the kids. Yeah. And um, in a similar vein is to how do you manage to have a compositional life and do all of these other things. Now add the, the, the added difficulty of how do you manage to be a mom on top of this? How do you... And that, Now this is me asking for a little yeah. bit of advice because how do you manage being... You know, a parent on top of really just being committed to all these other things too. Well, I, you know, I'm honestly still figuring it out. I think uh, <laughs> I would be lying if I said I had it figured out. But I think one of the things that my husband and I often talk about is that this is the life we chose, and we cannot offer our child a life different from the life that we chose because we believe in the choices we've made and we love our life. So we have been trying to just take—I mean, take him with us to everything we do, which is what we've always done. Um, not feel bad at the fact that our house is always overrun with artists and with mm-hmm. guests, but see it also as, you know, just a really different life choice. It's, yeah, it's, and it's he'll a be exposed to choice. so many people with so many different things to say. And so, exactly. So we, we balance it by, you know, trying to have different schedules so that we're each with our son. He doesn't have nights where, you know, we're not there, or if they are, they're very few. Um, when we do have late concerts, we take him, which means he's going to be tired the next day, but those are choices we make. We live an alternative life, mm-hmm. and we agree that we have brought him into this life, but we think that the, the positives outweigh the negatives. Yeah. And uh, and then we, we obviously think about him and, and what he's desiring, and it's a constant evaluation. Yeah. And even there, there's doubt that you're not a great parent. <laughs> and uh, the only yeah. thing I can say is he seems very happy. So uh, so I feel like we're we're doing something right the other day. He, um, I love this, but he, you know, we, we often have guests from out of town, especially with OMW, because we didn't have a place for people to stay, so they'd always stay with me. Mm-hmm. And he got used to it, and they're really fantastic musicians from Zimbabwe, from yeah. Norway, from Finland, you know. And then one day, we didn't have guests for a couple of weeks, and he was like, why don't we have guests? <laughs> Suddenly depressed. Exactly. And I was like, what do you mean? This is great. We have us time. And he was like, when are we going to have the next guest? This <laughs> us is time. boring. Forget about it. I was like, okay, this this kid's having, he's having a good time. <laughs> he wakes up, there's, you know, African marimbas in our living room and he's playing on them. He's having fun. That's awesome. Well, Paula, I want to thank you for thank coming you. and taking the time. I would love to, uh, uh, you know, as specific projects come, maybe come in with some of your collaborative artists and maybe have another time where we lovely. might sit and have a, have a nice three-way conversation about really what, Love that. What collaboration really means. And thanks for talking about starting things when you were in school. That, again, is something I want to belabor. No, it's, it's the so time important. to start it. Exactly. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you Appreciate for having it. me.